1: Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. Sex abuse is hard to talk about in any way. Reading or talking about what humans are capable of doing to each other is a shock. Furthermore, sex abuse and scandals involving religion dominate news cycles when they occur and everyone can likely conjure a few examples. But sex abuse is a societal problem, not simply a religious problem. So why does sex abuse, when it involves religion, Get so much more media coverage than sex abuse that does not involve religion. Dr. Megan Goodwin's new book, Abusing Religion Literary Persecutions, Sex Scandals, and American Minority Religions, discusses this topic. The book combines literary criticism, legal history, media analysis, and religious studies theory to parse not only how religious sex abuse happens, but also what work stories of religious sex abuse do in the world. If sex abuse is common, and it is, so too must be our efforts to understand and dismantle its causes. In this conversation, Dr. Megan Goodwin and I discuss narratives of contraceptive nationalism, stories that attempt to defend the American body politic from insemination by religious outsiders by portraying them as sexual threats, and seek to minoritize religious outsiders through allegations of sexual abuse. The major topics we discuss are the satanic panic, Mormon fundamentalism, and Islam. We discuss the marginalization of religious minorities via sex scandals, but then discuss how sexual abuse is actually everywhere around us. Simply put, sex abuse is a human problem, not merely a religious one. Dr. Megan Goodwin is Program Director for Sacred Rights, a loose funded project promoting public scholarship on religion hosted by Northeastern University. Her academic expertise is in issues of gender, sexuality, race, politics, and American religions. Her first book, Abusing Religion, Literary Persecutions, Sex Scandals, and American Minority Religions, is available through Rutgers. Dr. Goodwin is also the co-host of the amazing Keeping It 101, a Killjoys Introduction to Religion podcast, which she makes with Dr. Elise Morgenstein first. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Megan Goodwin. Dr. Megan Goodwin, welcome to Classical Ideas. Thanks so much for having me. It is a delight to finally have you here. We have conversed in so many ways over the years, and this is just such a delight for me to include all of your work and scholarship. So we're going to get into tons of great stuff here, and I'm wondering if you can just introduce yourself to our listeners, however you see fit. Sure.
0: Uh, I'm Megan Goodwin. I am the Program Director of Sacred Rights, W-R-I-T-E-S, which is a Henry Luce Foundation-funded Project hosted by Northeastern University that promotes public scholarship on religion. I am also the author of Abusing Religion. Gosh, what's the the subtitle? Something uh, scandalous like Literary Persecution, Sex Scandals, and American Minority Religions. Which
1: Boom, you nailed bad. it. I actually had it written down <laughs> right here.
0: Well done. Love it. Um, Yeah, So it looks at the way that we use sex to minoritize non-white and or non-Christian, non-mainstream Christian religions in the U.S., particularly after 1980. Mm. Uh, I am the co-host with Elise Morgenstein, first award-winning professor at UVM of Keeping It 101, a Killjoys Introduction to Religion podcast. And when I'm not doing all of that, I am also a visiting lecturer at Northeastern, and my work uh, hovers around intersections of gender, sexuality, race, uh, minoritization, which is to say politics, and I, I, pop culture, I guess, is a fair way to put mm.
1: that. Yeah. Well, you know, when I was looking at your professional bio on your website, which is so succinct, it's it literally is- just says gender, sexuality, race, religion, pop culture, and politics in what is now the United States. And it was exactly. so condensed and so crystal clear, but I found myself with follow-up questions to that. And I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on your succinct bio and tell me a little bit about your path and your areas of interest and what were some (laughs) stepping stones along this path?
0: Oh no, this is, I'm going to give you the exact opposite version that you're supposed to do in like job talks because in job talks, like applications, it's always supposed to be like, it was clear for me since kindergarten (laughs) that this was who I wanted to be and what I wanted to do. And that (laughs) is not that is not the tea for me. Okay. So I, uh, went to Boston university and I was a print journalism major back when that was a thing. Uh, Clinton's whole, uh, shtick, uh, happened my sophomore year of college just to date myself. So I got pretty disillusioned with journalism pretty quickly. Hmm. Um, and then kind of sat and said, okay, well, I don't, I think want to be a reporter. I was working at WBUR, Boston's NPR news station at the time. So I thought maybe I still wanted to do something with news or media, but I wasn't sure. Uh and then my senior year of college, I got really excited about thinking about religion. Um, I did 13 years of Catholic school, if you count kindergarten. Mm -hmm. So when I got to BU, I was like, "Eh, religion, whatever, I'm done. Mm -hmm. And then by senior year, I was again obsessed. Uh, But I maxed out all of the credits that I had paid for. So I, like a giant nerd, sat in on five religious studies classes my senior Mm. year for no credit. I was just like, can I sit here and, and learn things?
1: Oh, that's so interesting.
0: And the professors were like, sure, fine. So, so yeah, so I got to, I mean, I got to take like an African diasporic religions class was one of the hugest names in African diasporic religions. Not that I knew that at the time. Mm. I got to sit in on Taoism and problem of evil and it just, yeah. So I knew I was excited about it, uh, but I didn't know what I wanted to do with it. I thought I was going to go in the Peace Corps and I was halfway through that process and 9-11 happened mm. um, and I did not feel great about representing the United States abroad. Mm-hmm. So, I was like, ah, I don't know. is it a grad school question mark? Yeah. Um, so, I started looking at programs and thinking about, like, all right, well, I have all these questions about how religion works. And I really thought that theology was going to be the space uh, that I could answer them. So, like, I applied to the University of Edinburgh, I applied to a couple different divinity schools. And I didn't know, and this is one of those, like, it would have been helpful. If I had realized earlier in life that I was on the spectrum, but like I did not realize that when they they were saying like the divine, most of these places mean specifically the Christian God, mm. because I, despite being a professional reader, I'm not always great at reading between lines. I hear So you. I, was, I was shocked that they like did not want to do my witchy pagan research project. <laughs> But you know where does want to do that stuff drew drew university plus so yeah I wound up in a master's program for women's studies back when that was a thing um, with a religion concentration because they didn't have a religious studies masters with a women's studies concentration Um, and Bob craft at UPenn when I was applying to a bunch of places was like this is cute you don't have any classwork in religious studies please go get a master's degree and come back. So we did. So I got to work with Tracy West, Tracy West, and Virginia Burris and Dana Nolan Fuel, and a bunch of really great folks. Uh, and my project became different than what I expected it to be. My, it always does.
1: That's so great.
0: Well, sure. But I, I showed up and was like, "I'm. I think maybe I want to apply to Penn to do like Akkadian, Sumerian, Babylonian stuff." And my master's thesis wound up being on Genesis three sixteen and Genesis four one. Wow! And yeah, yeah, so like the first chapter is hardcore Hebrew translation, biblical Hebrew translation, and then the rest of it is how does this like fractured character of woman play out in Anglo-American fantastic literature mm. <laughs> so, like Hebrew translation and then I'm going to look at some Milton and then I'm going to look at some C.S. Lewis and George McDonald and then I'm going to look at Philip Pullman and then I'm going to look at Alicia O. Stryker's Lilith poems and it's it master thesis ta-da yeah um, yeah
1: well, then I can see how the how all the modern stuff came in as well because your recent yeah. stuff is so like 1980 and you know after.
0: Yeah, yeah, I went the opposite way.
1: Nice, <laughs> Just, very cool, um, awesome. Well, that is so yeah. cool. What a, I, I love the way that that works out sometimes.
0: <laughs> so, so right. So I thought I was like, okay, well, I have I've found my niche. I'm going to be like a religion and sexuality person. Uh, PhD program. How do I do that? And like, there aren't really tracks for religion and sexuality, which is again, a thing that I did not know because I didn't know how grad school worked. Mm. Um, cause they don't tell you unless you're, I didn't know grad- either. And yeah. I
1: enrolled just as a fluke, just because I needed something to do. Like it was that accidental.
0: I mean, I definitely knew that it was what I wanted to be doing, but I definitely did not know how the system works. So like if, people in your family or people in your social circles have applied to graduate school before, they can tell you how that works. I did not know. So I had to apply a number of times until someone was finally like, hello, this is what your letter should look like. And that someone was Randall Stiers at UNC, um, who wrote a book on religion and magic and was uh, sympathetic and excited about the work that I wanted to do.
1: Great um, topic too. religion. Yeah, I love it. sure,
0: sure. And I definitely thought I was coming in to work on witches and um, and, well, you read the book. There's, what, two, maybe three paragraphs about witches? Right. <laughs> so, blah, blah. But I will oh say the God. great thing about UNC and about uh, working with Randall was that he really pushed, and the program really pushed. Jason Bivens was really involved in this as well. Um, for me to get to the core questions that I was trying to answer when I wanted to work on witches and paganism, and that is really about, okay, who gets left out? whose religion, whose practices, whose ways of being in the world get qualified as dangerous and too different to be allowed. And mm-hmm. that's, I mean, that's where my work lives. So I, I got there and I, I think there are through lines, but it was it was not a straight path through the woods.
1: Wonderful. Well, and the way that you and I connected mostly via your work was through what you mentioned earlier, the Sacred Rights Public Scholarship on mm-hmm. Religion Project, which is now, I, I believe you are now preparing to interview candidates for your third cohort, correct? Yeah.
0: It's awesome. really exciting, yeah. I mean, oh, Sacred Rights has been is is both a, a huge, huge amount of work, but also an incredible gift, right? So that's <laughs> that's the next trajectory. right? Hooray! Yeah. I got yeah, I got into grad school. I did the grad school thing. I got my PhD, uh, and then I I got a number of really lovely positions that were not permanent. So I was mm-hmm. at Bates doing creative pedagogy stuff, which was great. I was at Syracuse for a year doing race, religion, and politics, and I just like. <laughs> The market did not want me. Right. Uh, so I wound up back uh, in the Northeast and I got this position at Northeastern. Um, just like visiting scholar in women, gender and sexuality studies, which sounds super fancy, but what it is, is a library card, a third of an office and an email address. So mm. like you're in it, but barely.
1: Mm-hmm. And I
0: think it, it's an unpaid position. Like it's really just, we're giving you library access and an email account. Wow. Um yeah. So it was one of those like, OK, I don't even know if I want to keep applying for jobs. I don't mm. know where or how or if I fit in the academy anymore. Uh, I am literally writing jokes about dogs on the Internet for money. Seriously. Yeah. Um. All of all of the breed descriptions on Animal Planet are for dogs. And most of the cats are things that I wrote. Oh, um, wow. I, i recommend the whip it entry it's a good time um it's all devo jokes uh but like so so i'm like i'm literally writing jokes about dogs on the internet and trying to figure out like what am i doing with my life plus the election has happened and i went from feeling like okay well i have to teach religion and politics in this like both sides everyone is equally valid way to like, mm, no, I am enabling fascism and I have fucking had it. Mm. So uh, I started sounding off on Twitter a lot more. I started paying a lot more attention to the way that the media, I mean, I had been paying attention to the way that the media was covering religion and politics, but feeling more and more like I wanted to be part of shaping that conversation. And I have a BS in journalism and I was like, oh, let me send out some applications, see what happens. And I had no clips. So none of these places that were suddenly interested in religion wanted to hire me. Wow. And that, is when I met Liz Buchar, who was my, like, faculty liaison uh, for this Northeastern thing. And her only requirement, like, for doing this was she was supposed to introduce the public talk that I had to give as, like, the the one thing that Northeastern asked me for in exchange for my email address and my uh, library card. Um, that was it. And instead, Liz showed up, asked me out to coffee. Uh, and <laughs> I mean, you, you've spoken with Liz, so, mm-hmm. you know, like conversation starts and you're going and it's a million miles a minute and she's she's the literal best yeah um she's like all right you're writing a book what do you want to do where do you want to go what do you want to be like i don't know i'm thinking about religion and media things Uh And she said, oh, that's interesting because I have a grant because she always has a grant because she's the best. I'm working on this ACLS loose grant for religion, journalism and international affairs. And I am maybe putting together a conference and I'm teaching this class next semester. And maybe I have space in my grant so that I could use you as a consultant. And that way you get paid. And also you can help me think about this. But also I'm thinking about applying for this much bigger grant that would do something around religion and media and like scholarship about religion in public. And we're still kind of struggling with how we wanted to talk about that. And I said, yes, yes, I definitely want to be involved in that thinking, okay, there's no way that we're going to bring in three quarters of a million dollars, but like this lady is awesome. And I I came in as a fan of her work. Uh, so this is a great chance to like get to know her better and get some grant writing experience and just like hang on and figure out what I, what I want to do and like where I want to go next.
1: And it's instead, really amazing.
0: well, I, at that point, did not know about the miracle that is Elizabeth Buchar, Because if she says she's going to do a thing, she, she does a thing. She's like, I'm going to make you a job. I'm like, of course you are. That's really sweet. Like, it's really lovely of you to say that. Oh, my gosh. And she, she yeah. I mean, like, she did it. She, she got us $750,000, which is one of the largest grants in humanities that Northeastern has ever secured. Uh, and she created this space for us to both promote public scholarship on religion, which is it, which is amazing, right? It helps the public think more deeply, more carefully about religion. It helps journalists, I think, ask uh, more interesting and more nuanced questions, which is so, so important. But it also helps us direct, frankly, much needed funds to minoritized scholars. Like mm-hmm. our whole shtick with sacred rights is trying to amplify voices of scholars who are marginalized and minoritized in the academy. And we've just been incredibly fortunate, even as we are working really, really hard to be able to take that money from the Loose Foundation. Thank you, Loose Foundation, by the way. Yes. and, And direct it to amazing scholars who are doing smart work who are collaborating with journalists who are doing their own reporting or co-reporting or shaping stories and just hopefully not hopefully we're doing it they we did 50 pieces of public scholarship just in 2020 during a damn pandemic indeed our, our folks turned out 50 pieces in places like the washington post bitch magazine which you know i love yep uh, there was an amazing series on this very podcast with our first cohort
1: yeah so much fun
0: Uh, and i'm given to understand that vicky brennan our religion and sound superstar was the most listened to podcast of the year
1: it was it's and, true
0: it just getting to see all of these people share their work with the broader public is just it's so exciting and truly like whose whose job just gets to be well i'm going to teach stuff I really like and also just fun scholars being smart where it helps more than just people in the academy. Like how is that a job? Elizabeth Buchar and the Henry Luce Foundation is the answer. But amazing. Well, and that
1: that cohort was just the Uh, most fun thing I've ever done on this podcast. Like I've had so many incredible experiences making this show for the last three and a half years, but that nine episode mini series with that thread that was woven throughout, getting to learn from these incredible people and their incredible work on so many topics was just the most thrilling experience for me. Cause I interviewed all nine people across mm-hmm. the course of like four days. And the conversations just left me so energized yeah. that I was like, it really injected my interest in keeping the show going. Like, yes, I was, yes. Like, I was like, I don't even really know if I want to do this and I need something new. I need a project that inspires. And I reached out to you two. And you're like, oh, let's do it. And yeah. I, it reignited my passion for making the show. I'm not even I kidding.
0: Love that. I love that so much. Well, and that's, I think that, frankly, I'm going to give away the secret ingredient in Sacred Rights because there are a lot of places that are doing like public scholarship stuff now. And I think one of the things that really sets us apart is the focus on community and cohort and network building and that, that energy thing, right? That's SMART because- yeah, it's great for your publisher to be like, you need to get on Twitter, right? You got work coming out, but that's not how Twitter works. It's about networks. It's about community. It's about connection. And frankly, public scholarship works the same way. Like, yeah, you can throw out a couple op-eds, and and they can even have some impact. But if it's not work that excites you, you're not going to keep doing it. And frankly, you're not going to do it very well. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that excites me, that makes me want to do this work, is getting to meet people who are doing things that. They're passionate about that, they're really invested in, and that, yeah, hearing about their work and their passion makes me want to do my work more. And we're just all kind of boosting each other and lifting each other up. Like that, that's the academy I want to be a part of. And well,
1: it's amazing. And you're creating it.
0: We're trying, we're really yeah. trying. But again, it, it requires buy in from everyone. So I don't want to make it sound like, ah, oh, Liz and I made this happen. It's the people in the cohorts that are making this happen. And I'm really proud and inspired by the folks in this 2020 cohort for doing that work from a distance and under such duress you know we were expecting to be able to bring everybody together for a week like we did with our 2019 cohort and obviously that couldn't happen but they're working together they're collaborating they're boosting each other's work and i see it and it's just it's really good to see
1: amazing well and you're doing your own show as well where you are not just directing this project but you mentioned earlier keeping it one on one with Dr. Elise Morgenstein first the show that you co-host together and mm-hmm. i love your show so much as i said in my recent thing with um with with Christian Peterson who put out the uh, tribute, the movie, of, right? or the <laughs> reviews the course Yeah, yeah yeah and it was so great cuz like you hold class Via podcast. And it yeah. like, helps us expand and revise our views of why religion matters here and now. And you give us homework and it's wonderful. And I'm, I'm wondering if like, you know, so, since you're talking to somebody who also makes a podcast and I do mm-hmm. it completely by myself, what do oh. you wish listeners knew about the behind the scenes of making a podcast?
0: I don't think I could do it by myself. I'll start there. I, I think it's a ton of work and it's work that folks in the academy are not trained to do. So I don't know that they know to recognize it as labor. Uh, Sound producing is so time consuming. Mm -hmm. It it just is. I mean, and even I have gotten much better at it. It takes me much less time to put together an episode now than it did, you know, this time last year. Gosh, it's only been a year. Wow. Yeah. Um, And that was coming in with some rudimentary sound editing uh, skills, but it's still, it is super time consuming. And even putting together that MP3, is, is just the beginning, right? Well, it's it's the middle because you've had to write a script. You've had to, in your case, contact people you're interviewing. So there's a whole bunch of scheduling stuff that happens. You need to maintain a website presence. So that's a whole nother skill set that people in the university are not not trained to do and not trained to recognize as work. Uh, You need any sort of social media presence to be able to promote the show. So that's Mm -hmm. a whole nother job on top of that. And then once you've produced the show, you then have to get it on, promote it. Uh, For us, we're really committed to to accessibility, so we have to get it transcribed, which is uh, both an automated service and something that has to be uh, checked manually. And that we pay for. So it's expensive and labor intensive. Mm-hmm. And then you're maintaining an archive, basically. So I just redesigned our website over uh, winter break to think about how it would be more useful for folks who want to teach with the podcast. But yeah, it's just, it is a giant undertaking. And truly, I, I would not want to do it alone. So props to you. Hey, thanks the only so reason, much. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, truly, the only reason that keeping it 101 has proceeded as smoothly as it has is because Elise is just empress of calendars like she gets stuff scheduled she keeps me on track and she yeah she, I do the sound editing but Elise is really how the podcast happens
1: it's great it really as a team effort and I have another podcast that I make about a punk rock band called propaganda and my co-host and That's I familiar. we work yeah we work together on that so hard and yeah. it's, but it, it's really wild um, how much goes into this and I just love it so much that it's like the best hobby I've ever had mm-hmm. and like I can't stop doing it even though it's so much work and I'm like oh my gosh it's so hard but I just need to keep going because I truly do love it but anyway so That's wonderful. Keeping a one-on-one. If you haven't listened to it, everybody who's listening to that, please go and listen to that immediately. It's right away. And season three is starting right now, isn't it?
0: It, So season three starts next week as of this recording. So I think it's the 13th of January. And then we release episodes fortnightly it's a new awesome. format this season too we're really excited about it so i just doing... saw the
1: syllabus and i'm delighted oh, with the syllabus. So my we... friend uh, dr simran jeet singh is right on there right there on the roster i love it yes,
0: we um <laughs> I-, I met simran through at least they were at harvard together and she introduced me at aar and i just fangirled at him and was like okay we're gonna be friends now <laughs> so
1: i love it well <laughs> bullied him
0: into being my friend it's fine <laughs>
1: So, Dr. Gobin, let's get into your book, Abusing Religion, Literary Persecution, Sex Scandals in American Minority Religions, which is out from Rutgers in the it year is. that shall not be named, JK 2020. <laughs> it's um, only been
0: six months, and it feels like 400 years have passed.
1: Hey, it's extending the life of the book, the fact that we have the slowest year of all time when it came out. You know what I mean? Yes, yes. (laughs) We'll just frame it like that. So the opening line of the book reads, this book is about narratives that attempt to limit American religious and sexual differences since 1980, and specifically about stories that foster religious and sexual intolerance by perpetuating the incorrect but tenacious assumption that religious difference causes sexual abuse. And then you go on to list Crack Hours Under the Banner of Heaven, Mock Moody's Not Without My Daughter, and uh, I believe it's Pazer and Smith's Michelle, Remem- uh, yeah. Michelle as,
0: remember
1: yeah it's pulp nonfiction narratives that cause large scale lasting backlash against American minority religions of Satanism Mormon fundamentalism and Islam so on the surface what do the authors of these books feel like they're trying to accomplish because these are some well known books
0: they're very well known and their beloved is the thing that is tricky uh, they think they are trying to save women and America from bad guys. And they don't, they're not usually explicit about the religious or sexual intolerance. They just like happen to frame religio-sexual outsiders as horrible predators who abuse white american women and children but they don't usually name the whiteness piece either it's just american and uh, american women and children and then you're supposed to intuit
1: that they're white Mm. so why how and why did you land on these three texts to frame abusing religion
0: (laughs) i'll give you the short version because i will i will be frank i turned in 13 different drafts of my dissertation proposal wow yeah uh, so we there was some space between again what I thought I was going to work on and what I wound up working on. But uh, the short version, the the hierophany was actually Terrell Givens' uh, Viper on the Hearth, and reading about captivity narratives, and thinking about okay, I want to say something about American religion. I have been assured by a number of prominent american religious historians that i myself am not an historian so and honestly like history is not my thing i don't work in archive what i want to do is look at how we talk about religious outsiders in public you're sensing a theme Mm -hmm. and captivity narratives are this especially if not uniquely american literary genre that get a lot of attention in lit studies and American studies and even a little bit in religious studies, although not as much in the 19th century. But then we just stopped talking about them. Mm. I mean, and that's a little bit because American historians for the most part think that religion went away in the 20th century, which is cute. Um, Larger, larger disciplinary issues aside, captivity narratives didn't go away. They're an incredibly popular and incredibly engaging, like they sell Genre that convince people they're giving them like an insight into these secret, dangerous, sexy places Mm. in American society that you wouldn't go. But what happens is they make readers overwhelmingly, though not exclusively women, think they've learned something about a minority religious tradition like Mormon fundamentalism or Islam. Mm -hmm. actually people who read these books know less about Islam or Mormon fundamentalism or like uh, Michelle remembers, isn't even really about Satanism, but whatever uh, uh, more about witches than they would have. Like you actually know less, you are less informed than if you had not just skipped the book altogether.
1: Mm. Yes. That is a, 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 an interesting consequence. So like these books likely sold a lot of copies. I couldn't find how many they specifically sold.
0: That's tricky, but I mean, if we only focus on the books, we're we're missing the point, point. and that's why right. I, I look at the narrative strategy rather than the books themselves. Because yeah, the books sold like hotcakes; they absolutely did, and not without my daughter, very famously made it into a movie. Michelle remembers only not made it into a movie because Church of Satan sued Pastor and Smith, um, and uh, Ron Howard still owns the rights to Under the Banner of Heaven. So like, I'm not convinced we're not going to see a movie there either. Mm. But it's it's bigger than that, right? Because the books are catalysts and also paradigmatic of specific anxieties about religious outsiders Mm -hmm. so they pop up and then they spread everywhere people buy them people talk about them the authors wind up on very popular talk show hosts and like in the 80s there's only three channels so everybody is watching these shows at the same time but also they get taken really seriously in the American legal system, in the American public health system. So you've got mental health professionals diagnosing people as survivors of satanic ritual abuse. You've got John Krakauer in front of the Texas House of Representatives telling them that Warren Jeffs has come down to Texas to take advantage of their religious freedoms. Bill Clinton passed a damn law based on Betty Mahmoudi's story. Like mm. that changed international foreign policy. Mm. So, oh, so the books are important, but the the life of the story is much bigger than the books themselves. And all of them inspired a, just an explosion of similar stories and publications.
1: Yeah. And they like they they shape perception, public yep. perception of oftentimes tiny groups of people who mm-hmm. have, you know, very little power to push back on the narratives that are being peddled. Does that make sense?
0: Mm-hmm. It does. Well, and that's that's. One of the really big questions of the book is sex abuse happens absolutely everywhere. That is not a question, that is a fact. Why do we flip the fuck out when mm-hmm. sex abuse happens in these tiny communities and not when it's happening in everyday spaces, right? Yeah. Why are we sending tanks against a community of like 2,000 people? in El Dorado, Texas, when in the city of El Dorado, Texas, there is sex abuse everywhere. So, and like, this is not to say that we shouldn't care about sex abuse that happens in rural places, in small communities. It is to say we need to care about it everywhere. And when we only focus on sex abuse that happens on the margins of American society, we allow sex abuse to keep happening. Because we blame religious outsiders, rather than blaming ourselves for creating the conditions of possibility for sex abuse to keep happening.
1: Mm. Okay. Things like
0: poverty, isolation, uh, lack of education, all of these things.
1: So, yeah. And so you landed on, the book is broken sort of like into three parts. Mm-hmm. And I want to know a little bit about each one briefly. But so you landed on satanic panic, Mormon fundamentalism, and Islamophobia as sort yes. of like your your three different sections. I did. Um, How did you land on these three specific topics?
0: (laughs) Well, part of it is just looking at which books had the most traceable, demonstrable impacts on the way that Americans think about religion, but also Mormons, Muslims, and witches are the original boogeymen in Mm -hmm. America. Uh, We have been afraid of witches since before there was a US, right? I teach a a witches class, so we've got a whole Salem unit, and- Again, Mormons and Muslims have both been used as not just examples of religion done wrong, but truly the danger of what happens if you let religious freedom get away from you, Mm. if we let religion be too free. And, yeah, I focus on what happens after 1979 because that's the piece of American history I care about the most. But... uh, the entire history of the U.S. also demonstrates the ways that these traditions have been minoritized. So there's a bigger picture there as well.
1: Mm, Nice. Okay. So, well, and there's also a a key term in the beginning of the book that really caught my eye, and that's the term is contraceptive nationalism. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to sort of tie a thread on contraceptive nationalism throughout my questions on the three parts of the book. But I want to get, you know, I want to get an example of what that looks like in each section, but I'm wondering if you can define this term, like, right off the bat, and can you tell me a little bit about what contraceptive nationalism means within the scope of the book?
0: Yeah, so contraceptive nationalism is a rhetorical strategy that attempts to protect both white American women and children and the American body politic from, and I use the word deliberately, insemination by religious and sexual outsiders. And the, the blur or the distinction between religious outsiders and sexual outsiders is a little blurry. It's a lot blurry, honestly. So what happens is we get these stories of what happens when they, and the they there are non-mainstream Christians or non-Christians who are often racialized as non-white, who are sexualized as predatory and abusive what happens when they come for our women and children and our here is white women and children who are mainstream christians who or who are just white and that smuggles in about a bunch of assumptions about how we should be in public that are derived from christianity with the serial numbers filed off
1: Mm.
0: so we're looking at stories about muslim men being particularly abusive of women and in the 1970s and 1980s what we're looking at is an anxiety about abusing white american women and children rather than muslim women being particularly oppressed that's a post 2001 phenomenon uh in the case of flds we have this anxiety about religion allowing abuse in the name of salvation right so I should say out loud that very few Mormon fundamentalists actually practice polygyny, the marriage of one man to more than one woman. Um, It's like 25%. But it is theologically permissible to take more wives. And the point is that you are building a family that will last forever. It's not like, it's not how much snatch can I get? It's like, how big a family can I build to serve God? How do I build the kingdom of God? Both on earth and in heaven.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So it's it's not it's not about the sex. It's about it's about salvation. But what you have in in the case of like Texas is the House of Representatives and a number of other uh, state level agencies going, well, they practice polygamy. Polygamy is abusive. So we know that this religion is abusive, and we need an excuse to go in and get them is a thing that was actually said on the record. We need to find a way. My issue is not that, like, I want to say out loud, abuse is bad, and I hate it, and I want it to stop, and I want us to be better about preventing it. What I don't want is for us to look at sexual difference, like polygamy, and assume that because it's not a heterosexual binary model, that it must be bad and abusive. Multiple partner... Sorry, multiple people partnerships are not necessarily abusive. Coercion is abusive. That's bad everywhere. And P.S., we already have laws about that. So rather than tell consenting adults how they should be partnered with one another, why don't we look at the actual abuse and problematize and address that? Um, And then, of course, you get into conversations about, well, can 14-year-old girls consent to these relationships. And the, that's a bigger, more complicated issue that we need to think about closely, but we can't start from the place of different sex equals abuse.
1: I or love we it. shouldn't. That, that makes complete sense. And, you know, I was, uh, I, I came at conversations about this topic. I've, I've had other conversations like this on the show with, uh, Christina Rossetti and hmm. Philippa Meek, and yeah. they sort of illuminated a lot of stories about polygyny that I had never really come to understand because to be perfectly frank with you, my first exposure to the topic of Mormon fundamentalism was from reading under the banner of heaven. I will never Mm -hmm. forget it. I was on vacation in Barra de Navidad, Jalisco, Mexico, on my first year of teaching, I devoured that book sitting poolside. Yeah, oh, and I yeah walked... it's written really well. It's a very well written book. He's very good. Yeah. And like I walked away thinking I knew what Mormon fundamentalism was about, you know? Yep. So that's the Greg of 2007, who I was unlikely at that time to be asking questions like this in 2021. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I think often since I'm reading your book and talking to Christina and Philippa about their work as well, about what reading books like that did to my brain uh-huh. for for a long time, you know what I mean? Like it framed the yeah. way that I think about things that are uh, different from what I was surrounded by growing up, and I think about the consequences that reverberate across many years in that regard.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, and that's the thing the the reason that books like Under the Banner of Heaven are dangerous is precisely because yeah, they introduce you, they introduce readers to subjects that are fascinating mm-hmm. and they're written in really compelling ways that perpetuate truly centuries of religious intolerance not just toward Mormon fundamentalism but toward Mormons and you walk away feeling like you know a thing and you actually know less than you did when you started yeah and the thing that kills me Greg is not just that he talked to no Mormon fundamentalist women who actually wanted to be in those relationships although feel like he'd been out there for a while and probably could have found one or two Mm -hmm. but that he extrapolates from this one horrific murder to all right the core of this book is this murder and then he zooms out and says well you know mormon fundamentalism is actually inherently abusive and violent but then he zooms out again and says well actually mormonism is inherently violent and irrational and abusive toward women and then he zooms out again and it's like, actually, the problem is religion. And not only is like, not only does he do this really subtle, but like very convincing if you're not paying attention, indictment of religion across the board as like violent and irrational and abusive. But also he ends in this really offensive way of like, golly, I wish I could believe something. It seems so nice, but I just I can't be a happy idiot. Mm. <laughs> and it's just Uh, It's so offensive. And and prevalent is the thing because there are a lot of folks out there who are like, golly, it'd be nice if I could believe something because that's how I understand religion. But I don't believe it. So I must not be religious. And also the people who are religious must be stupid
1: oh my gosh well in your book abusing religion really showed me the voices that are absent from a from a narrative like crack hours you know what i mean like i didn't ever really put together in 2007 whose voices were missing and that's mm-hmm. a huge problem because it took me i don't know what 14 years later for us to have this conversation for me to realize that something that yeah. was so powerful that i knew the name of the brothers I haven't read this book since 2007 and mm-hmm. i still knew the first and last name of both of those brothers whose uh story that book revolves around so like so much was imprinted on my brain from reading that book. And I didn't even realize whose voices were missing.
0: Right. Well, and the thing is, is unlike something like Waco, where the siege happened and there was no way to really hear from the people inside, aside from the the 911 calls with Koresh, the Mormon fundamentalist women at Yearning for Zion went on the offensive. They were I mean, these are intensely private, intensely, truly cloistered women But the state came for their kids. So they are in front of news cameras. They are they're blogging. I I talk a lot about Marie's blog in my um, in that last chapter. Their voices are out there. It's not like they're not communicating with people. And honestly, the fact that they did communicate with the outside world so much probably had a lot to do with them eventually getting most of their children back, but they're not part of the, the broader story that we tell about Mormon fundamentalism. And certainly it's not what people remember about the raid or how they think about Mormon fundamentalism more broadly. Like what we see are all these shows of like escape from polygamy. Mm. And I mean, and we, we started to complicate that a little bit. I mean, I'm not, not a huge fan of Cody Brown, but like sister wives really did some cultural work that I think is important. But by and large, the folks that are paying attention to these stories are mostly paying attention to the like the sexy, scary cult angle, and it makes me very tired and very angry.
1: Yeah. Well, so we sort of jumped around in the book. So we just talked about part three of the book. So let's go back to part one for a second. So <laughs> here's Michelle- the thing.
0: That used to be part one.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, I love it. It used to, it used to
0: work backward and I, I changed things at the last minute. So sometimes oh. I forget.
1: Oh, that's so cool. So it actually works and we didn't, I didn't even realize it. Fantastic. So part one of the book is sex abuse and the satanic panic. And Michelle <laughs> remembers came out in 1980 and yep. about satanic ritual abuse. Interestingly, it was written by a psychiatrist and his psychiatric patient-turned-wife, which I found out today. And they write about a global satanic cabal... that was conspiring to steal Mm -hmm. and defile children. 40 years has gone by and anyone who doesn't realize that what I just described is something that we're currently living through isn't paying attention. So talk to me, let it out. Tell me about this, uh, (laughs) this thing that I just talked about and why it matters today.
0: It's so funny. Honest. I mean, it's not funny. It's horrifying and and exhausting, but, but It is, it's a little bit funny that when I was pulling this book together, the stuff that I got the most pushback on was the Satanic Panic stuff. Because, Mm. again, we're always thinking about, like, what makes you marketable? And none of my committee members were super excited to have me on the market being, like, the Satan girl. Oh, boy. There's not a whole lot of jobs for people who work on that stuff. I was like, right, but this happened, and it's so weird, and we don't talk about it. (laughs) What the hell? And I, like... I I was a child of the 80s. I remember these shows. I remember my mom freaking out, watching like the Geraldo in the 2020. This is a time when Geraldo wasn't a complete joke. I, like, I went to Catholic school. I remember being warned about the dangers of, like, KISS and D&D. And mm-hmm. I was, like, deeply disappointed to find out that D&D is not nearly as, as t- <laughs> titillating and did not put me in touch with the occult like I was hoping. Is just, like oh, boy. It's just storytelling, but there's no pictures.
1: Oh, uh, my gosh.
0: Fine. anyway so so right so we have this period of history where americans and this is north america not exclusive to the united states get really concerned about this global satanic conspiracy to s- steal your children and and defile them and also undermine democracy and i'm working on this stuff and i'm thinking okay well i'm never act this is never going to be the case study that I talk about in public and i included one paragraph about pizzagate and when i was even right before the book came out. So I submitted my final draft, I guess, uh, summer before last. I was like, no one's even going to remember what pizza is. No one's going to be thinking about QAnon. It's kind of stupid, but like, it's so weird. I just have to include it. And the single most talked about topic of my research this summer has been QAnon and the Satanic Panic.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It just, and and part of it is that uh, there are folks that feel like the satanic panic never actually ended. But a larger part is that claiming people are attacking our children and that they are aligned with the forces of darkness is a time-tested, very effective strategy for mobilizing people who are scared for their families. Yep. And and it's, it's frustrating because... I don't think the majority of like Jews, who, by the way, are mostly women. I learned that from Jeff Charlotte.
1: Interesting. Um,
0: yeah, I did not know that. Jeff taught me that. Uh, I don't think that they're <sighs> coming at this from like a, a hatred or at least they don't think that they are coming at this from a, a hatred of outsiders or a hatred of Jews or Muslims or whatever. Although they, a lot of them wind up in those spaces. Eventually it comes out of this. I love my kids. I want to protect them. And like Anne Berline has this great line in her lift high the cross, the book about the clan where the absolute worst things that people do come out of our, our best impulses. Like, mm. how are you going to argue with a save the children? Yeah. Except that the activities of save the children do not save any children. I mean, not to, not to go too far down uh, a cue hole, but <laughs> sexual trafficking has actually been prosecuted much less In the past four years than it had previously. The framing of trafficking is primarily a sexual issue is is a misdirect. That's incorrect. It's mostly labor trafficking. And we have done nothing to make actual sex workers more safe or able to leave sex work if they want to, which is really the, the core issue that I try to address in any abuse conversation is if we worry about abuse, how do we make it safe for people to leave conditions that are abusive to them? And the ways that we do that are not I don't know, show up with tanks and take all their kids. It's Mm. not going to like want to work with the state.
1: Oh my gosh. Okay. So I'm so curious as well about uh, the American Islamophobia section two, because I was 18 on 9 11. um, And I've, I've told the story in my religious studies classroom many times to my seniors that I did not know anything about Islam. The same. When 9-11 happened, I did. I, I think I knew Islam was a religion, but like it literally had never crossed my mind at all. Um, I'm not even exaggerating. I knew, no, no, no. I mean, I knew nothing.
0: I, no, same. Like I grew up Catholic. I knew maybe four non-Catholics, all of whom who lived on my street until I went to college and I went to college in Boston. So like, it's not like they're not surrounded by Catholics again, but yeah, no, I don't think I, I maybe knew a few Muslims probably, but it certainly never came up and it was not like, it wasn't a thing that would have ever been talked about. And then this happened and suddenly like one, everybody's an expert on Islam, except that again, they know even less than they did when they started reading about any of this because it's all horrible shock value. They're coming to get us. But one of the things that was interesting in looking at Not Without My Daughter is realizing that, like, actually, no, the U.S. has been Islamophobic for a long time. And mm-hmm. We just didn't pay attention to it in showing up on the news ways where we're specifically talking about it being religion. Because most of the Islamophobia of the 20th century and even the 19th century was just straight up racism.
1: Yeah. Well, and I knew nothing. Like in this book, uh, Not Without My Daughter presents Muslim men as inherently violent, bestial, sexually predatory, and uh, and then my first so that that kind of programming seeps its way into the consciousness of people who are, you know, scared, like you mentioned earlier. Um, but then you have something like nine eleven, which which uh, then feeds the the violent word that I just dropped a second ago. And it's just this this mass uh, programming, essentially, of it really is of public consciousness. It's really scary.
0: Yeah. Well, and again, the 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 thing that folks knew about. Islam and Muslims before 9/11 was Gulf Wars, right mm-hmm. So Bush sets a deadline for Iraq to pull out of Kuwait the same week that not without my daughter comes out uh, and before that it was an Iran hostage crisis. So yeah there there have been there have been ongoing islamophobic threads, in American history for a long, long time. And again, a lot of that is just anti-Black racism, not just, but it's anti-Black racism for much of the 20th century. And then 21st century, we get this explosion of Islamophobia that stops thinking about Islam necessarily as a threat inside the United States, which is where Not Without My Daughter lives, and shifts it to Islam is a threat coming from without. And they are, yeah, they are a threat to their women which is why it's okay for us to go to where they live because we don't understand that Muslims have always lived in the United States. Uh, so we will go to their countries, hear my scare quotes, and save their women from Muslim men. Ugh. Except that bombing women actually does not save them at all and like, not have... Like allowing them to get to humanitarian aid doesn't save any women and making rape more likely in places like Afghanistan also does not save women, which all of which were consequences of uh, American incursion into places like Afghanistan and Iran and Iraq and just all
1: of that. So we have sort of talked about Mormon fundamentalism, American Islamophobia, Mm -hmm. the satanic panic. We have, um, you know, religious minorities within the United States that we've talked about Um, some are much bigger than others. Like these communities vary in size tremendously, but we have this culture that seems to have developed in a way that we use sex as a way to smear groups and we, and we smear them effectively. Yes. Using sex. Why? Yes.
0: (laughs) That works in part because we have internalized a specifically, religious way of thinking about what kind of sex is good and what kind of sex is not and one of the interventions i make in abusing religion is demonstrating that the way that late 20th century americans think about what good sex is is a really catholic way of thinking about sex mm. There's This, to me bizarre like mind-blowing moment in the 1970s, where you get this confederacy of different kinds of Protestant Christians coming together for political reasons. And, you know, Protestants have always been involved in politics, but you don't have a consolidated national level political lobbying machine like you do with the emergence of the new Christian right and the moral majority. But for the first time in American history, Catholics... Are not just included, although just the inclusion is bizarre. But their their Catholic sexual doctrine is driving not here's what Christian sex should look like, but here's what American sex should look like. And like, let me, let me just just break this down for you. So John F. Kennedy was until very recently our only Catholic president. I'm hoping that we get another one pretty soon. Mm-hmm. Fingers crossed. And in 1960, he has to go down to Texas and assure Southern Baptist ministers that he's not going to let the Pope run the country. 20 years later, you have Catholics setting the stakes for what counts as moral sex. And what counts as moral sex, what counts as good American sex is heterosexual. It is procreative, but not too much. Uh, It is not for money. It is between uh, only two partners. And the reason that the moral majority of the new Christian right are making these arguments is because, well, because they're losing the country, because racism, because a ton of anxiety around shifting definitions around sexuality, around gender, around labor, lots of anxieties. But you get a religious argument for what national morality should look like. It's not Jesus wants this from you. It's if you're American, this is the kind of sex you should be having. So it's just, it's so funky. And then it it's its still in action to this day. I talk about this a little bit in the conclusion where it, it has only steamrolled. So Patty Miller in her book, Good Catholics, which is an amazing book about uh, Catholic perspectives on reproductive rights and, and particularly around the, the question of abortion, has this great line she got from one of her interviews where JFK goes down to Texas in 1960 to assure Southern Baptists that he won't let the Pope run the country. And then in the two thousands, you've got George W. Bush going to the U S conference of Catholic bishops to assure them that he is going to let the Pope run the country. Like the way that we legislate sex in this country is increasingly informed by Catholic ways of thinking about sex. And what I mean by that specifically is a collapsing of the boundary between contraception and abortion. Mm. and this was something that started developing in the 1970s because previous to that, frankly, most Protestants did not have an issue with contraception at all. Uh, and we see it come to a head in the Hobby Lobby case where the Supreme Court, which now has a supermajority of Catholics uh, and has always had a significant Catholic presence for much of the 20th century, is saying that there is no space between contraception and abortion in the mind of this corporation which we have decided as a person and so because we can't judge the sincerity of their belief it doesn't matter if it's true or not the idea that contraception and abortion are basically the same thing and to be objected comes traceably Just it's, it's so so clear if you look at the development of the rhetoric that this is Catholic thinking mm. but like Hobby Lobby is not a Catholic company. It's an evangelical company. So what you see is this, uh, they referred to it as co-belligerence in the 1970s, this joining forces of conservative, overwhelmingly white uh, Protestantism with conservative, overwhelmingly white Catholicism only about issues of sexual morality and controlling people's bodies, especially around issues of reproduction. Because it's not as though we see political mobilization of Catholic thinking around the rights of the worker. It's not like we see mobilization around nuclear disarmament or addressing climate change and environmental justice. It's only around sex, which is, this is where my work lives.
1: Yeah, well, and, um, you know, in the book, you point very soberly to the facts of sexual abuse in the United States. You say how one in five American women, one in nine girls, and one in 52 boys experience sexual assault, and about the obscene frequency with which Americans sexually abuse in all communities. Um, Mm -hmm. You write about how only 27% of abuse survivors report those assaults. Perpetrators have a 0.4% chance of being incarcerated. And yet the incredible attention on sexual abuse inside tiny religious minority communities far outweighs the attention that is predominant in front of our faces every day, year after year, and seldomly do those stories inspire any kind of intervention. So Americans want to say, I can't believe that happened. But what happens when we actually have the chance to intervene against abuse is that we seem to not really act against the huge problem and instead focus on these tiny little instances. Does that make sense?
0: It absolutely does. Well, it doesn't make sense, but it does also make sense. Yes. What you said, I understand what you said. Okay. I I just hate it because it's true. I mean, and we, we, that's where the book ends up, right. Is that it's not what I'm, what I'm hoping for is not, we stop telling stories about sexual abuse. What I'm hoping is that we stop sensationalizing them. We stop pretending like they're rare and we start paying a lot more attention to how, frequent, how prevalent, how truly everyday sex abuse is. Because by focusing on only the most extreme cases, only the most horrific abusers, and Warren Jeffs is a horrific abuser who I I don't believe in hell and I don't think there should be prisons, but if there's a hell, he should be in it. And if we're going to have prisons, that's where Warren Jeff belongs until he dies. The point mm-hmm. is, to stop, is not to stop paying attention to the Warren Jeffs, it's to stop pretending like Warren Jeffs is not on a spectrum of abuse that runs through truly every facet of our society. Mm. It's just, it's, it's exhausting. I wrote a piece for Sojourners over the the summer that uh, is called Abuse Happens because we let it and we do. And one of the ways that we let abuse happen is by pretending that it's rare or by convincing ourselves that accusations of sex abuse are so grave that it's better that we don't make them at all.
1: Mm. And sitting
0: with the Catholic piece, sorry not to cut you off, but the Catholic piece is important here because, again, the one thing that people know about religious sex abuse in this country is that the Catholic Church engaged in it. And that's true and that's important. And what I point to in the conclusion is that the Roman Catholic Church in the United States is covering up massive, institutionalized decades, probably longer, of sex abuse at the very same time that they are becoming the arbiters of national sexual morality. But also... Catholicism has become so mainstream in this country that while people are really upset, while there have been a bunch of fines, there's been, I need to check, but the last time I checked, there was no changing of the statute of limitations for how long survivors could come forward and have their concerns addressed. Even Pennsylvania, which has been the most litigious state about this, there have been, sure, priests have been defrocked, a couple people went to jail, there have been no penalties to the U.S., uh, conference of catholic bishops they have only grown in political influence and not to put too fine a point on it nobody's sending tanks into parish parking lots on sunday pulling kids out of there because they've been put in harm's way every single member of the yearning for zion community was registered as a sex offender not because they abused children but because they let their kids live there because they put them in danger by letting them live in a mormon fundamentalist community No one is qualifying Catholic parents as sex abusers or as sex offenders because they let their kids go to church or they let their kids go to parochial school. Mm. And the thing that kills me, and not to give the whole thing away, but read the book. It's good. good. Uh, But but I talk in the epilogue about being on this panel with two of the guys from the Spotlight team, um, Robbie and Matt both talked about the cognitive dissonance around breaking this story truly 20 years ago and being very clear that it was not just a national but an international problem. And then to have the story come out in Pennsylvania two years ago and everybody be surprised.
1: Yeah. Well, and I know that you're the work of uh, Dr. Brian Kleitz, Dr. Tia Noel-Pratt hmm. from Sacred yes. Rights, like they do a lot of great work in this field as well. And it's just-
0: also Kathleen Holscher, Jack Downey. There's a lot of
1: really important work happening. Amazing. Well, um, Dr. Megan Gowen, your new book, as you mentioned, is very good. Abusing Religion, Literary Persecution, Sex Scandals and American Minority Religion, which is out now. And I am loving it because it has shown me the way that books that were important in my life uh, made me see something in a certain way and showed me what i was missing and i'm hoping that folks who uh read your book will also think about the ways that they were shaped in certain ways throughout courses of their life in times when they were very um impressionable and Mm -hmm. maybe consider ways that they can uh continue to grow and challenge the ways that that books like you know under the banner of heaven may have put in their minds without them really having the tools and the abilities to question of what is missing does that make sense
0: it it really does and i think the piece that i want to add to that is that i think in the academy we assume that religion gets made in these like formal ways in these form and outside the academy too formal ways formal spaces we're doing religion we're talking about what religion should or shouldn't be in specific spaces on specific days of the week. And I'm one of the things I hope I've demonstrated is that no, we actually define religion in some really trashy places that we still need to take seriously because that's where the work happens. Just because you can buy under the banner of heaven at an airport doesn't mean that's not doing real work out in the world.
1: Mm. Well, what is next for you? What is coming down the pipeline for you projects wise?
0: Man. Okay. So (laughs) that, that noise is the noise of, having thought that my next book was going to be about uh, Islamophobia and technologies of Islamophobia in um, data collection and law enforcement. And I was really psyched about it because it was going to be super nerdy. But here's the thing, the Islamophobia is still happening. I mean, it's always still happening, but there's there have been so many very large moments about it recently that I can't I'm not far enough away from it to be able to start thinking analytically about it. I'm just just mad. Also, I could not have predicted that this election cycle was going to bring out so much frickin' cult talk. Mm. Like, I have been actively resisting writing a book about cults since I have started thinking about writing a book. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was so much frickin', oh, Trump is Jim Jones, QAnon is a cult blah, talk in the last several years that I just, I I give up. I give up. I'm going to write a cults book. So... I I actually have a a call with my editor this week, but I think what I want to look at is the way that the language and the, again, the the rhetorical strategy of culting works uh, in 20 and 21st century, what is now the United States. And I think I want to look at these, not just comparisons to people's temple in Jonestown, but the memory, the cultural memory of Jonestown itself actually does real violence to black women Thinking about why we want to call something like Trumpism or QAnon a cult, and thinking about the way that uh, American Islam gets called, gets policed as a cult. Um, That's where that's where I'm sitting now. So there's that. Uh, Elise and I have some stuff in the works that is not officially out, but keep keep an eye out for more keeping it one-on-one goodness. And, you know, I'm committed to like four other articles. <laughs> so we'll see how it goes. Hopefully we're allowed to go outside next year. So I'm hoping to spend some time traveling and not doing work at all. But-
1: yeah. Well, and I also just have to say that, uh, in relation to all of your discussion just now on cults is that your discussion on cults within the keeping a one-on-one podcast is among my favorite content that okay. you, that you and Elise have included in your show because <laughs> those conversations, uh, like I've, like I've said publicly, um, change the way that I think about my own show. And it shows me ways that I may have been reckless with my my language in the past um, on, you know, saying certain things are something. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so your, your show has done a massive service for me in that regard as well.
0: That's that's amazing to hear. And I'm only laughing because I didn't want to do that episode. Mm-hmm. I only did it because Judith Watson asked us to because so it just makes me so mad. But I just sometimes, sometimes the energy for this work comes out of rage. It certainly did for my first book and I suspect it will for my second. So thank you. I'm, I'm glad that it helped. That's great to hear.
1: Well, Dr. Megan Goodwin, where can people find you if they want to know more about your work and follow your many fantastic projects?
0: Well, I'm I'm always, and frankly, too much on Twitter, or Twitter is always too much with me. So you can find me on Twitter at mpgphd, and you can also check out my website at megan m e g a n dash goodwin g o o d w i n dot com.
1: And what's the sacred? What's the uh, keeping it one hundred and one website and podcasts.
0: Oh, uh, that's just keeping it one hundred and one dot com, and we are. uh, keeping it underscore 101 on twitter sacred rights is sacred dot org, and we are also sacred underscore rights on twitter
1: fantastic well dr megan goodwin thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me about your so many projects on classical mm-hmm. ideas it's been such a pleasure
0: this has been great thanks so much for having me greg